Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Dr. Eli Karam back with you, bringing another installment of the AAMFT podcast. Those of you that listened throughout our two season knows one of my favorite parts of the show are interviewing pioneers in family therapy. When I got into the field 20 years ago, it was right around the time you know we were losing uh, some of our field's greatest contributors, people like Jay Haley, Michael White, Steve DeShazer, Insu Berg, all in my first couple of years in the, in the profession. And really the origin for this podcast, if you've been listening for the two years when we interviewed Bill Doherty, was watching Bill Doherty's work 30 years ago after Virginia Satir passed away, a little over 30 years ago, about 32 years ago. Bill Doherty kind of got the idea and got AMFT on board to capture the, the living pioneers that were still around. And those, uh, those videos, while uh, somewhat dated, are great interviews and legacies and was kind of the origin of the idea uh, for the Pioneer Series on the AMFT podcast that we started in 2019. And today I am so happy to bring back um, to uh, her rightful place in the history of family therapy, Chloe Madonis. And Chloe Madonis, as many of you will know, is the uh, foremost female associated with strategic family therapy. Obviously, um, she got training at MRI and she moved on in her partnership, both professional and personal with Jay Haley, and really has had a second career for the past two decades. I don't think a lot of our uh, systemic therapist listeners know about, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, But if you already don't know, let me tell you a little bit about Chloe Madonis, and um, I'm so thankful she was able to give us time and sit down for this interview, and she's a great storyteller, and I I learned so much that you just can't get by reading a a textbook or uh, listening to someone uh, that does not have the firsthand knowledge that she does. She's offered so many classics in our field, including Strategic Family Therapy, Behind the One-Way Mirror, Sex, Love, and Violence, the violence of men. You know, she's a, a therapist, a social activist, a systemic thinker. She's presented her work all over the world, given keynote addresses for the most prestigious conferences in the field. She's won several awards for distinguished contribution to psychology, featured in national magazines like Newsweek, Vogue, The Washington Post. Um, Since 2002, Chloe has worked side-by-side with Anthony Robbins, developing, taking what we've known for years, the strategic systemic thought, to new fields. And this cross-disciplinary project with uh, Anthony Robbins combines their two legacies, distilling the most swift, effective, and practical strategic intervention methods from a variety of fields. Uh, With Anthony Robbins, Chloe also co-founded the Council for Human Rights of Children, which is a very strong place in her heart, as she'll talk about. And that's co-sponsored by the University of San Francisco. This interview was such a treat in that you'll hear Chloe talk about uh, her origins in Argentina, what she learned from her family of origin, how she met Jay Haley and at first uh, had a very uh, combative relationship with him and she speaks openly of uh, their marriage and divorce and how she moved forward in taking this great systemic strategic thinking that we know and love and applied uh, to different disciplines and she's still very vital and, and very active so I hope this interview serves as a reintroduction for Chloe Madonis to her kind of rightful place in the history of family therapy and we'll be back after the interview all right pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast today by a true pioneer in the field Chloe Madonis just take us back to uh the 1940s in Buenos Aires, Argentina, correct? Yes. 
So um, when I was 12 years old, I already knew that I wanted to be a therapist and uh, I was planning my career at the age of 12. So I'll tell you quickly how that came to be. So my uh, my family on my father's side was a bit troubled, especially I had some uncles that were not very good people. One uncle in particular that was quite delinquent and very wealthy. And the, there were, my father had three brothers and one sister. He got along very well with the sister, but not with the brothers. And whenever there was a family reunion while my grandparents was, were still alive, you could feel the tension. And so I got very interested in how do you improve family relationships? How can it be that all these intelligent people cannot sit at the table together and get along? And so I began to read psychology. And I was very fortunate that I went to the American school, so I was completely bilingual. So what I couldn't get hold of in, in English, I could read in Spanish. And well, what were those first readings? Do you remember? Freud, Steckel, Anna Freud, Melanie Klein, um, Simone de Beauvoir, Sartre, Camus. So, so this I is was... a 12-year-old girl doing some heavy reading. Yes. Yeah, so, so my my father uh, was not happy with some of the stuff that I read. And, of course, the, the library in the American school where I went did not have any of this stuff. There was an American library in the city in Buenos Aires called the Lincoln Library. It's still there. And they didn't carry many of these books. So I wanted to read in Spanish. So my father found a little bookstore with um, a lady who owned the bookstore and was always there. And he made friends with her and he trusted her. So he said to me, okay, the driver will take you to this bookstore whenever you want to go and you can read anything that this lady says it's okay for you to read. But she was giving me all kinds of stuff and I was hiding these books under the mattress because I knew that my father would take them if he saw them. <laughs> so <laughs> by the time I was at the university, I was ahead of the game. So you... you could tease out this dynamic between your father and his siblings. What was it like in your own family of origin as far as the dynamic? Was it a similar pattern or, or how would you describe it? No, no. My parents were married for until my father died. And um, of course, they had their ups and downs in their marriage, but it was mostly very good. My parents were very good people. It was it was all good. And when you were at university, was it just a matter of time before you wanted to come to the United States? Well, probably the worst take professionally that happened in my life was that I got a scholarship to Harvard when coming out of the American high school. And my parents didn't let me come because they couldn't envision an 18-year-old girl so far away from home. So that was bad. So in Argentina... There was no department of psychology, so I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist, although I didn't really want to go through medical school. It seemed absurd for what I was interested in. And my father again said, absolutely not. My daughter is not going to work with dead bodies in the morgue because the first year of medical school there and everywhere, I think, is anatomy, and you have to work with body parts. And so um, I said, okay, but there's no psychology. What am I going to do? At that point, I had a boyfriend who then became my husband, and he said, study economics with me. Let's both go into economics. And I really didn't want to, but he persuaded me. I did a year of economics. And by that time, the Department of Psychology opened at the National University. And so after one year, I switched to psychology. There was a class, um, a course that I took on in clinical psychology, and we studied the Bateson Group. And the papers that were coming out of the Mental Research Institute uh, here in California. And that's when I decided I was going to come to the Mental Research Institute. And that was your first time uh, coming to the United States? I had come as a tourist before to New York. Yeah, it was the first time that I came seriously. 
So my husband got a scholarship uh, to UC Berkeley, and I showed up at the Mental Research Institute and said, I'm an Argentinian psychologist, and I want to work for free as a research assistant to anybody here that could use me. We're in 1965. And who are the people running MRI at the time? Virginia Satir and Bateson had just left. So there was Don Jackson, Jake Haley, John Wheatland, Fish. Watslavic. And Watslavic. And Watslavic was the one that said, I need a research assistant. So I worked, I worked for him. Yeah. <laughs> but I skipped one part that you mentioned about being a woman in those days. So the other big mistake in my career, apart from Harvard, the second worst mistake was that as I was, uh, I was volunteering at the MRI and I was also taking classes, just auditing classes at UC Berkeley in the Department of Clinical Psychology. And so one day uh, after I took several classes. The chairman calls me to his office and says to me, okay, you're in. And I said, in what? And he said, in the PhD program. We would like to have you in our PhD program. And I said, no, thank you. This is very stressful atmosphere here. I have a little girl and um, I don't want her mother to go through all that stress. And the, the chairman, who was a wonderful man, said to me, is it the professors that are bothering you sexually? And I said, no, no, total lie. Okay. <laughs> he said, is the female professors the lesbians? I said, no, no, total lie. <laughs> right. So, my life would have been much easier if I had gotten the PhD. Eventually, I got an honorary doctorate from the University of San Francisco. When you were at MRI, what was it like to be one of the only female voices in that group of very accomplished, uh, very expert male uh, theorists and clinicians? I was never intimidated by, by that. And I had a good girlfriend, Janet Bevin, who actually co-authored a book with Václavic. Uh, uh, when did you start being in the room with families? Um, I, I already saw a few families when I was at the Mental Research Institute because there were, they, well, first of all, I was simultaneously at UC Berkeley and I was working in a school when the public schools in Berkeley were integrated for the first time and children were bused so that the schools would be integrated. And I was consulting to the teachers in these schools where there was a lot of tension. And so from that, I also worked a little bit with families. And then because I'm bilingual, I was asked by various um, government organizations from time to time to work with a family for one reason or another. So uh, I began to work there, but I didn't work seriously with families until I went to the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic. We, when we went back to Argentina for two years and tried to adjust, I worked in the hospitals there, and I did work with a lot of families. And uh, it was interesting because uh, some of my colleagues thought that I was working for the CIA because <laughs> I was really interested in the poor, and I was always volunteering to work with the poor. And they thought I was reporting on the revolutionary poor in Argentina or something, something ridiculous. So then I got a lot of experience in, during those two years. When we came back in 1972, I uh, went into the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic just because they needed somebody that could teach in Spanish, that could teach family therapy in Spanish. And what was your relationship like with Sal and what did you learn from him? Okay, so what, Sal had an amazing program that was Sal, Jay Haley, and Barrio Montalvo had organized it. That was <clears throat> taking people from the community with no education. Uh, some didn't even have a high school diploma. And training them as therapists to work with their communities and to demonstrate that you don't need to go through a PhD program or to a social work degree 
to be a good therapist. And we did demonstrate that. It was financed by uh, NIMH, and we did show that their outcomes were just as good as the professional therapist. And then, of course, nothing happened with that. Nobody did anything when the program, <laughs> but it was an amazing program. So I was hired to teach uh, family therapy to Puerto Rican people from the community. You were, uh, at the time, at the two meccas of family therapy, MRI, uh, and then Philadelphia Child Guidance. Um, before, yeah, and I, I yeah. planned that. I planned yes. that. I planned my career like that. I think that if you really want to excel, and at age 12, I decided I was going to make a contribution to psychology. And so then you have to go to where the best people are. And so I planned that. Uh, so at the Philadelphia, at MRI, I worked for free. At the Philadelphia Clinic, they paid me so little that uh, it barely paid for my commute. And one thing that was quite extraordinary, the psychiatric residents went on strike and marched around South's office saying, with signs that said, pay, pay Chloe what she deserves. <laughs> and Sal was very open. There was, there was none of that uh, stuff that he is accused of. At least I didn't experience it and I didn't see any other woman experience it. He was tough with both men and women. He was harsh and often ill-tempered with everybody. <laughs> he was consistent. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I tell you the way he interviewed me. So I, I come into his office and I say hello to him in Spanish. And he says, we're going to speak in English because we're here in the United States. It's as if you meet another American in Russia and the American says, we're going to speak in Russian here. It was just very weird. All right. So then he says to me, uh, all right, tell me about your life. And I said, I'm going to sit down first, if you don't mind. I was still standing. <laughs> so I sat down and I said, I'm going to tell you about my professional life, nothing about my personal life. And so he said, all right. And then at the end, he said, I'm sorry, but this is a very stressful place, and I had to see whether you can tolerate it. <laughs> he put you through a trial by fire to start right. with this. Yes. I just thought he doesn't have any manners. His mother didn't teach him manners. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, after I, I began working with a Puerto Rican therapist, I was soon training the psychiatric residents and psychology interns also. So it, it was a wonderful time. Everybody wants to know, they know about your professional collaboration with Jay Haley, but I don't think many people know the story of how that relationship started. Uh, talk about uh, how you and Jay Haley became linked both uh, professionally and personally. Okay, so that is another funny story. So when I was at the MRI, I was still very psychoanalytic. It took me about two years to shift to a strategic point of view. Uh, I was interested in research on communication, which was what Jackson and Vaslavic were doing. But I was not interested in strategic therapy, and I was very suspicious of the family therapy that they were doing. Well, I can't and, imagine anything more different than, uh, you know, your whole life and your training had been going inside of the black box, and uh, the MRI guys believed that that was a constraint to change. It couldn't have been any more different. Uh, that is a... That must have been quite a, uh, a stretch for you to move from uh, a psychoanalytic frame to a strategic frame. Huge. So I was reading uh, Milton Erickson and uh, the few books that were around at the time, Minuchin's book, Virginia Satir, and so on. And I read Jay Haley's Strategies of Psychotherapy, and I was furious because I thought it was such an unfair criticism of psychoanalysis. So I refused to meet him. So all these guys were friends, and there were meetings with all the staff. And if he walked into the room, I would walk out of the room. That was how intense I was. 
and because I mean they were all prolific writers, but because he had written those books, you 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 held it most personally towards him uh, versus the other gentlemen. Well, because the others had not criticized psychoanalysis yes. as, as intelligently and sharply as he did. It was a valid criticism. But I was a believer still. So then back to those two years when I went back to Argentina, he came to give a workshop and I was asked to be his translator. And at that point, I had already shifted to a strategic approach. So I accepted. I thought this is a great opportunity to be able to ask him a whole bunch of questions. So that's when I met him, even though I already had been at the MRI for three years and refused to meet him. <laughs> yeah. So so then we began to work together at the Philadelphia Clinic. And I was in an unhappy marriage that had been unhappy for quite a while, for several years. And um, I was separate at the at the time that I started working a few months after I started working in Philadelphia I began to separate from my husband and to want a divorce and my father died tragically in a car accident in Argentina you were still a very young woman at this time we're talking about right now yes I was uh, let me think I was 31 yes yeah and I'm, and I'm I'm thinking Jay Haley was at least what over 20 years, or 23, no, no, he, 20. He was, he was 17 years old. 17. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. And yeah. it's, so at this time you were having these difficult life transitions and you have reconnected with him. Is, is he married at the time? He had also divorced. And, uh, as soon as he saw that I was divorcing, he began to pressure me to, for marriage. I never wanted to get married. I didn't want to get married to the first one either. I'm Argentinian, so Argentinians are a lot like Europeans. We don't believe in marriage. <laughs> we don't believe in the formality and all the legal implications and so on. So my father died, and that was major for me. I was divorcing. Jay was pressuring me. I had two little girls. I was in a foreign country, and so Jay and Braulio and Sal began to notice that I was not well, and Jay began to say, go see Dr. Erickson. And I said, well, he's in Phoenix. I, how can I do that? And said, call Mrs. Erickson. So I called Mrs. Erickson, and she said, I'll get back to you. And she called me back and says, Dr. Erickson says you have to come for a week. And I said, I can't come for a week. I have two little girls. And she said, bring them. So I went to Phoenix for a week with the two little girls and a nanny. And Erickson saw me for uh, every day of the week. He had other patients, so I had to wait in his living room while he talked with somebody else. And then he would talk to me again. And um, I remember being angry most of the time because I thought he didn't understand me at all. And but this is what is interesting. I didn't talk to him about this. So up to that point in my life, I had had what today would be called panic attacks and terrible social anxiety. In those days, it was just considered shyness or anxiety. But there was no talk of panic attacks. That was not a diagnosis in those days. But when I look back at it, if I had to be in a room with more than three people and speak to them, my heart would pound like I thought everybody could hear it. My hands would freeze. And this was a terrible handicap as a psychology student, as a therapist, as a teacher of therapists that I already was in Philadelphia. It was awful. But I was there with Erickson for my grief. So I didn't mention this. But when I left after that week, I immediately began to accept invitations to give workshops to 100, 200 people all over the place. I never had that again. He totally cured it. Did he use hypnotic suggestion with you? Was he paradoxical in nature with you or, or was, was he more uh, straightforward? He, he was funny because I said, I think that you're trying to hypnotize me. He said, oh, no, I would never try that because you must have had a bad experience or something. You're not hypnotizable. I think he hypnotized me. <laughs> 
And then I remember the few things I remember. I remember I said it must be difficult for you because I'm here talking about uh, Jay and all these other people from the MRI that you've worked with. And so it must be hard uh, for you to, you know, what position to take, what to say to me. And he said, oh, no, when I'm with a patient, I only have my patient's interest at heart. I don't care about anything. But what I do remember that he did, that was what made me so angry, was the f- as I began to talk about my family and my father and his death and all this, he said, you never had a father. I was there grieving for my father. And then he added, and as a matter of fact, you never had a mother either. And so I thought, this man doesn't understand anything at all about me or my family. And I think he was doing that deliberately because a good way to pull somebody out of depression. This is probably before Jay Haley had written Uncommon Therapy about his uh, all the lessons he learned. Uh, uh, from he was Milton writing. Erickson. He was writing it at the he, time. He was he writing was it. Writing. So you you firsthand experienced that. Wow. So yes. you you go there for an intensive week. You come back to Philadelphia, and then you you accept his proposal for marriage. It took a while, but what I did do was that I, I was giving workshops everywhere. I had lost my shyness completely, and that was like a miracle. That was incredible. After that week, you never had that, those symptoms again? No, no. Wow, that is amazing. So, so then the other part that is kind of heartbreaking. Too. So I years go by, and I never contacted uh, Erickson again, and then I became I became a speaker at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, one of the main uh, speakers. I think that was 1985, and the first the first Evolution Conference. And uh, Erickson had already died, and so the meeting opened with a party for the presenters, and Mrs. Erickson was there, and she was sitting on a couch, and I came and sat next to her, and I said, Mrs. Erickson, you probably don't remember me, but I was a patient of uh, your husband, and many times he would send me to the kitchen to talk with with you when he had to see another patient. I was there for a week. And uh, she said, I remember you perfectly. I know who you are. And you never called, you never wrote. So <laughs> that make you feel so, she said that. so bad, so yeah. bad. But then I remember that Erickson used to say that people would not contact him because people like to have amnesia to when they were feeling really bad. And so if they re- if they remember him, that it takes them back to the grief or the panic or whatever it was that they had when they were seeing him. So I knew that Erickson understood it, but still I thought I could have sent a thank you letter or something. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true, you know, my patient, I still see people once in a while. It's rare that they will contact me later to thank me or anything. What would you say your biggest stamp was on strategic family therapy? back when you and Jay started partnering together and, and moved to Washington? Um, well, I was, I was still quite young. I, I didn't consider myself an equal. I didn't start giving workshops with Jay until my first book was published and was very successful. I was the secretary, basically. I would check people into Jay's conferences and uh, and do that kind of work. And then when uh, when my book was published, we began to give workshops together. And uh, I think that I, looking back in those days, probably the use of metaphor and of benevolent paradoxical techniques that were not based on resistance. So I would ask people to pretend to do things. So instead of telling them to have the symptom, I would say, let's pretend that you have the symptom now. How would that be? Especially with families with children, because for children, pretending is so easy, but also with adults. And to this day, I think that my uh, my pretending techniques are an important contribution. And tell us a favorite metaphor, Chloe, that you developed. I really can't because I, I designed the metaphor for the specific family. I don't have a method that is used always in the same way. I invent my strategy for each family. I know it's hard to believe, but I do that. <laughs> you said you felt like the secretary at, at some point. 
uh, but not in a bad way. Right, right, in yeah. a bad way. Did what? How did that emerge? Because he was, you know, seventeen years older than you. He he was uh, a legendary figure in the field and very quick witted. You clearly held your own. How did that relationship professionally emerge to where you felt like an equal? Well, after writing probably the first book and the second book, and we we were quite competitive with each other. So it wasn't always like a, a wonderful collaboration. But he wanted me to give workshops with him from the very beginning, I think simply because it would alleviate some of the stress of dealing with a group for consecutive days by himself. But I was very clear that I wanted to make a contribution first and deserve to do that and not do it because I was married to him. So that, that's why I refused to do it until I was successful on my own. So you you were asking me for, um, for a good metaphor and you were asking me about my relationship with Sal. So quickly, I'll tell you another story that involves Sal. Um, so one day, it was a Friday evening, it was late, and I am supervising a social worker that is working with a very disturbed adolescent girl that is cutting herself. And um, it's a beautiful family. The girl is beautiful. The mother is beautiful. The parents are divorced. There is a stepfather that is closer in age to the daughter than to the mother. And as I'm behind the mirror observing this, I notice a certain strong sexual tension between the stepfather and the girl. And I'm thinking this girl is cutting herself because she uh, wants to be considered crazy so that there's no danger that she will have an involvement with a stepfather. And so it was Friday night, and I say to the therapist, I don't want to put her in the hospital, but what she's doing is very dangerous. All we have to do is find the biological father, get him into the picture, and she will be fine. But if we put her in the hospital, she's going to be so traumatized by that experience. So I said to her, I'm going to go look for a psychiatrist that can take responsibility because I didn't live in Philadelphia. And anyhow, I'm not a psychiatrist. So there's no, I can't find anyone in the building. And I find finally the chief psychiatric resident. And he says, um, put her in the hospital. It's Friday night. I don't want to be on call all weekend. She should be in the hospital anyway. So I said, no, no. And I find that Sal is giving a seminar and he's in a room with about 30 or 40 psychiatric residents, he's talking to them. So I walk into the room and I said, excuse me, Dr. Minuchin, but you always say that patients come first here. And I'm working with a family with a girl that has been cutting herself and I want to prevent the hospitalization. So I need a psychiatrist to back me up on this. And so I'm asking you to do it. And he says, ask the chief psychiatric resident. And I said, I did already. He said, no. So Sal stood up and said to the group, excuse me, I'll be back in a few minutes. He went, found the psychiatric resident, yelled at him. Don't you know what we stand for here? How can you not support Chloe, blah, blah, blah? I felt terrible. But he went into the room, talked to the family a few minutes, and then said he wanted to talk alone to the girl. And he said to the girl, what do you cut yourself with? And she said, a razor blade. He said, do you pick a clean one or a used one? And she said, a clean one. Uh, I can get an infection with a used one. So... <laughs> She realized that the intent was not suicide. So then then he said, so why do you do this? And she said, I hear voices that tell me to hurt myself. They tell me that I'm bad. And he said, well, do you ever hear good voice? And she said, no, they're just bad voices. And he said, well, it would be very nice if they turned into good voices. He said, I hear entire symphonies in my head and I love it. I developed that talent when I was in prison in Argentina for political research. So I can hear an entire symphony in my head and you should practice hearing good things. So then he left. The therapist went back into the room and the girl says to her, that doctor is crazy. I don't want to hear any voices, good or bad. <laughs> so anyhow, we found the father. She didn't go in the hospital. We said to the father, you have to come into the picture. 
get use your visitation, take the girl, show the stepfather that you're the father, and she's going to be fine. And she was. Isn't it amazing? We all have memories, um, those of us have been doing this for a while, of just clients we've worked with or family systems that are just etched in our head, just such powerful moments that we learn from. And that was a great story. What, um, and I guess I, I wouldn't be doing my job, so we, we, you told us how your relationship with Jay started. Um, what was that like when you work with someone so closely professionally and then personally it, it doesn't work out? So um, how did that marriage come to an end? And then how did that change your professional collaboration with Jay Haley? I wouldn't say that uh, it, it didn't work out. I always quote Margaret Mead, all my marriages were very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's great. See, so you, you remain friends. Yes, it was very happy for a long time. And then the spark was gone. And uh, also professionally, I developed differently. I began to uh, work with serious problems of violence with incest incest and sexual abuse and um, I developed a way of working that was quite different and we just um, we just distanced ourselves but we, we we stayed friends the the shift to start moving away uh, from what you had collaborated on collaborated on with Jay at the Washington School into uh, things like you wrote about in The Violence of Men. Talk about that part of your career. Yeah, actually, the first book that I talked about this was Sex, Love, and Violence that appeared, I think, uh, 1995, maybe. I don't remember the dates of my books, but it was around then. And what happened was that uh, there was a contract out in Maryland to treat juvenile sex offenders. And we won the contract. I applied basically because uh, nobody else applied. Everybody was scared of those boys. And I developed a method for working with problems of violence that is easily taught, consists of 15 steps, is published in that book, The Violence of Men, and also in Sex, Love, and Violence. And uh, we had amazing outcome, 98% success in the sense of no repeat offense. And um, so I, I think that it's important as therapists to work with the problems that really have to be solved. And violence is the worst problem in our society. And so I focused very intensely on that. And uh, to this day, I think that that probably has been my most important contribution to the field. Wow. And yes, I think of you as is someone that did great micro work as far as uh, the practice of marriage and family therapy influenced by these big macro issues that you were not afraid to take on, like violence. Um, that part of your career then led you into, I think what you have been doing the last oh almost two decades is your work with Tony Robbins. And some people that have read about you in their textbook or have seen you, have read your books, have seen you behind the mirror, they don't know anything about this. Uh, next part of your career where you took strategic thinking uh, and applied it to a whole new domain. Please, I'm curious how you met Tony Robbins and okay. and uh, what uh, you could tell us about the Robbins-Madonis Institute. Okay, uh, so that's another interesting story. So uh, that was, uh, when I met Tony, it was a down point in my life. I had accepted a job that seemed so interesting in the sense that I always want to work with the most difficult case. And this was an institution in Virginia that uh, institutionalized children and adolescents that were very disturbed and very violent. And naively, I thought that they really wanted me to teach family therapy there and to turn around the institution to where these kids would be discharged and to their families and reunited with their families and so on. And um, then I found out that all they wanted was to say that they had a famous family therapist on the staff, uh, but because they were criticized and accused of all kinds of things. And eventually the place was closed for sexual abuse. But I went there and they wouldn't let me teach anyone. Anybody, any of the staff that wanted to learn from me had to go through all kinds of hoops 
to be able to talk to me. They gave me a beautiful office, a high salary, and they would let me do it. So I was on vacation. Well, that had to be very frustrating for you because you, oh, you, was, you wanted to was, do the work. It was horrible. It was horrible. And to these days, I'll never forget those kids because in spite of all that, I managed to get quite a few of them out of the institution. But I had to fight like almost at a physical level to get them out. So anyway, I'm on vacation in Santa Barbara visiting my daughter and her husband. I work with them now. And uh, I wasn't picking up my emails or my messages because I was on vacation. And I get all these uh, messages all of a sudden and calls from the Tony Robbins office, Tony Robbins wants to invite you to Fiji so that you can critique a seminar that he's teaching. He's interested in your Greek. And so I said, uh, I didn't know who he was. I, I said, well, uh, I'm too far away. I'd be happy to do that anywhere in the United States, but I really don't want to go to Fiji. He owns a resort in Fiji. And this was a seminar for 50 people, they explained. What, what year are we at now, Chloe? This was right after 9-11. Okay. So that was 2001. Yeah, and it, back in that time, you couldn't turn on the TV at night uh, without seeing Tony Robbins and uh, his motivational speaking. I don't watch. I don't watch. I don't watch. Yes. <laughs> so that that is amazing. You didn't know who he was. That's probably when his Q him. rating was the highest. That's a crazy. <laughs> he knew who you were, but you didn't know who he was. Right. What, what had happened, uh, well, what happened was that in Fiji, there were going to be only 50 people in the seminar when normally there were thousands of people in his events. And he thought that I would be able to pay better attention if there were fewer people. That's why he wanted me to go to Fiji. So um, I said, no, in the States, they insisted, come to Fiji. Um, I went uh, to a bookstore and tried to find a book. And he had written two books that were like 600 pages each. And this, I had to get on the plane in five days. It was that kind of invitation. And I really didn't want to go. But my son-in-law kept saying, go, you need a vacation. It'll be fun. He must be an interesting person or he wouldn't be so successful. Just go. So I didn't have time to read the book. So I found a little audio tape that he had done that was at Barnes & Noble. It was just two hours. And the drive from Santa Barbara to the Los Angeles airport is two hours. So I said to my son-in-law, okay, I'm going to listen to this tape in the car. If he says one stupid thing, I'm not getting on the plane. <laughs> I'm coming back for the night. And yeah. so he not only didn't say one stupid thing, but he changed my life. I got on the plane and I was writing all the things I was going to do differently. My goals, my mission, how I was going to recover my mission and this and that. And then, of course, I arrived in Fiji and um, he's very charming. So we hit it off and uh, the seminar was very interesting. And um, we were having dinner one night, and he said to me, what, what is your mission? And so I began to talk about the institutionalization of children and teenagers and the absurd diagnosis they're given and how they're mistreated and incarcerated. And he said, give me an example. And so I told him the story of a boy. And he began to cry. I'll never forget that because I was so hungry. But I thought it was impolite to continue eating while he was crying. So I, I didn't finish the dinner. Then his wife came into the room. And he, and he says to me, tell her, tell her. And I said, oh, no, no, she's going to cry too. I said, Tony, you're a wimp. You have to listen to these problems. Yeah, it's not the people that come to your events are not suffering these problems, but this is a serious problem in the world is the exploitation of children. And uh, we have to do something about it. So that's when we began to talk about collaborate. And then I had noticed in his seminar that it was being filmed. And I said to him, I'd like to see your films. He said, I don't have any films. And I said, well, why do you have a professional crew that is filming? And he said, oh, that's just for archives. So I discovered later that he films every event in case he's sued so he can show exactly what he did. So I said, Tony, I can can make great films that will be used to train therapists for generations to come. 
And we began to talk about how to do that. And that's how we formed a partnership. This shows the reach of your work and family therapy that someone outside of the world of systemic thinking found you. How, how did he discover you? He, an employee gave him my first book, Family Therapy. Yeah. And he showed it to me. He had underlined practically every sentence. So he said, we think alike. We work alike. And we do both come from the Milton Erickson tradition. If I want to learn more about it, if I'm a listener, where do I go? It was, it's 18 years, and so he's lasted more than any husband, I always think. <laughs> it's your longest-term partnership. That's right, yeah. So we have a training program that is really the best of my work. It's an online and on-the-phone training program. It's called Robbins Madonna's Training. People can go to robbinsmadonnastraining.com. It, we have thousands of students that have graduated and thousands of students currently all over the world. Uh, the training is based on Tony's interventions with people at his large events. When he does a large event, he uh, asks for a show of hands for one problem or another. Somebody stands up, he talks to them. All this is filmed. I take the footage. Uh, pick pieces, put a narration explaining what he's doing. And this is the core of the training program. And then we also have once a week a questions and answers class on the phone where people from all over the world get on the phone and they can ask anything that they want. And I do this with my daughter, Magali Pesha, and her husband, Mark Pesha. Uh, who are also teachers in the training. Honors your past, your present honors your past and that you uh, narrate what was going on. It's, it's a beautiful a parallel to what you and, and Jay did. Uh, what did Jay think about your, because I think Jay died in 2007. What did Jay think about your partnership with Tony? You know, I never asked him, but really? I, I think he thought it was great. Yeah. I don't think, I, yeah, I was criticized uh, by a lot of therapists. I actually asked the advice of um, of my friends. Should I, should I join? He's so different. He's so crazy and all this stuff. And Everybody said, be careful, don't do that, you have to protect your career. But there was one person that said, do it, and that was Braulio Montalvo. He had been following Tony for years and years, I didn't know that. And he said, as people, there are no two people that are more different in the world than you and Tony. And I believe in tapestries. Something amazing is going to come out of this partnership. Go for it. So I, so I did. You're intuition was strong and you had as you said that night in Fiji you had that dinner with him and you saw his uh, underneath his bravado and his showmanship you saw his humanity and you saw him cry as you told your story and I'm sure that endeared him to you as well oh very much so he really cares about people and you know in our profession we have to become hardened we have to be able to tolerate listening to all kinds of tragedy and not give in to our emotions he he doesn't he cries. <laughs> yeah. Now people will wonder that is a good point. You have worked with the kind of toughest populations, uh, acting out youth, children that have been abused, violence. How did you, as a lot of our therapists, think about their own work life balance and how not to burn out and not to be have compassion fatigue from working with these types of clients. How have you managed to do that your career? Oh, I, I, I never have compassion fatigue. I, I think we have to keep fighting and we have to move on. And if I, if I lose that, my life won't have meaning anymore. I believe that as therapists, our goal is to help people to find meaning in life, to find passion, to live with passion. And uh, we have to continue doing that. I don't, I don't for a moment, you know, now I'm getting older and I'm thinking I should just take it easy, but I can't. So I've, I'm writing another book. <laughs> uh, well, I want you to talk about that in a second, but I, I do think one of these common factors, you know, I'm someone that studies uh, these uh, successful clinicians is, is 
uh, and model developers, they are as passionate about the work late in their career as they were in the beginning. And listening to you this hour, that is very clear that passion still exists. It's why you still are as vital now as, as as you were before. You mentioned something also that I'm interested about. We've talked just in passing about your two daughters. So it sounds like one of your daughters is is working with you. What um, what do they think about their mom? Because you know they've gotten to see your evolution, but you're just mom to them. It's amazing in doing these interviews. I've asked really important people in our field, and a lot of times their family had no sense of the impact they made. They were just mom or dad. But I'm curious what your daughters think of your career and what your collaboration with them looks like now. Yeah, well, I get no respect, of course. <laughs> but other than that, um, my work with my daughter, Magali, and her husband, Magali is the youngest, is wonderful. She has a whole following now. She trains coaches, life coaches in strategic coaching, and her work is quite different from mine. She is very spiritual, but she comes from a different kind of spirituality than mine. I, I focus on spirituality as a result of working with violence. Because I believe that there are certain kinds of violence that people can inflict on one another that cause a pain in the soul, that, that you know you have a soul when it gets hurt. She, she comes to spirituality from meditation and a Buddhist tradition and so on. So she integrates that kind of spirituality with strategic therapy. And she has a following of her own together with her husband. So I'm, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm very proud of her and I keep up with her work. My oldest daughter is very intellectual. So she reads a lot. She always knows what's going on in, in philosophy and anthropology and sociology and politics and everything. So she gives me all that information. So I have a good relationship. But there's another thing I wanted to say about meaning and passion in my work that, yeah, which is very important. I think that we are at the point in our field where we don't need to keep it secret anymore. Psychology and especially family therapy are very new in the world. So in our effort to make it a profession, to make it scientific, to make it important, we close the door to divulging the important concepts to others. And the wonderful thing about having a coaching program is that we teach to everyone that is interested. So we have students who are therapists, of course, but we have many students who are lawyers, business people, engineers, artists, people who want to be better fathers, people who want to be better bosses, just people who want to help others to have a better life or want to have a better life themselves. And I think that we have matured enough, especially in marriage and family therapy, that we can impart this knowledge to people that are not professional instead of closing the door. And so this conference you can only attend if you're a professional in the field. I don't think that that is uh, good anymore. Where do you think we need to go as a field? Uh, and and how, how do we do that? I mean, obviously, spreading the word as you've done is important. What else do you think we need to do to move the profession forward? We have to embrace the idea that words are healing and that when you heal communication, you're healing relationship, you're giving people a better life. Um, We have to be more politically active against the diagnosing and medication of people and the institutionalization of people, of course. Uh, And so that's another wonderful thing about training coaches. Coaches don't need to use the DSM, don't need to give a diagnosis to anyone. People pay out of pocket. And we have to fight the power of pharmacology. What, if anything, do you have left to accomplish? Because you're still, as anybody can listen this hour, can tell very vital and and driven. What what does the next uh, chapter look like? The next chapter. Oh, I wish I I wish I had a more coherent answer to that. Um, I will continue the the fight, the fight uh, against labeling people. We don't need to do that. You know that is 
That comes from Aristoteles. It's how old that is, the idea that you have to classify things. So you have to classify people. I want to write about the importance of realizing that not only people are all different and it doesn't make any sense to classify them into different diagnoses, but also people are different at different times in their life. So we all have many personalities and I'm, go I'm going to be curious to see what new personality develops in me. We all change all the time. And what is important for us to do as therapists is to steer that change to where life has meaning and where people can live with passion. What do you do in your life outside of your work to instill that passion and to stay vital in that way? Uh, many times young therapists will want to know about self-care and their work-life balance. What are things outside of the domain of coaching and therapy that keep you vital? I love music, all kinds of music, mainly classical music. I love the opera. I love art. So now I'm teaching myself to paint with watercolors. I exercise Every single day, I do my own method. Um, I love the theater. I read a lot, and I like to read things outside of the field. For example, now I'm reading the autobiography of Trotsky, Leon Trotsky of the Russian Revolution. And it's fascinating. His life is told by himself. I, I, I read, for example, the book, I don't know if you're familiar, Arari, the book Sapiens, Evolutionary Psychology. So I keep involved with, um, with changes in other fields because that's what inspires me most, to come up with new strategies and new ways, new ways of working. Yes, it's like uh, it's full circle. It's the 12-year-old girl that was reading Freud uh, is, yeah. still, is still reading. It's amazing. Right. Speak, speaking of books, um, please tell our listeners about the current book and uh, how that uh, adds to this uh, impressive collection of publications you already have. Okay, so I have uh, one that just came out that is called Changing Relationships, and that is the summary of all my work. It just came out, and it has an interesting chapter that, there that is called The 14 Habits of Highly Miserable People. That is in fun. <laughs> that that was a networker article. I've read that. Yes, that's a, that, that's yes. great. It's it's very uh, paradoxical too. Yes. yes. So then also a revised edition of Behind the One Way Mirror. My second book is coming out, and it has a new chapter on um, strategic therapy as a humanism. And so that will be coming up out in the next month or so. And the one that I'm writing now is based on my work with Tony, where I take his best interventions and I turn them into stories. And so each chapter is a, the story of a different person and what their challenge was and how they changed and resolved the challenge with conclusions about how to adapt this to your work. And one more time for our listeners, the website, uh, if they want to see where uh, the work you and Tony are doing and your strategic coaching seminars, where do they go for that? Okay, it, go to getrmt.com or just robinsmadonnastraining.com. Wonderful. Well, or write to, write to me. I answer everybody. Oh, our, our listeners would love to do that. Please tell us the uh, best way to reach you. Yes, you can you can go to the website and we can reach you through there. Um, Madonna's Institute at Gmail. Perfect. And I cannot, as you can tell, uh, I'm an excitable guy, but I've really enjoyed talking to you and... Uh, you know, it's one thing to read about someone in a textbook. Like I said, it's another thing to hear the story behind them. And so what many wonderful stories you shared with us today. Thank and you. I, can't, I, I can't thank you enough. I enjoyed very much. Also, I don't always get the chance to tell all these stories. It was fun. <laughs> Eli, back with you. I'm so privileged to bring you uh, this podcast. And really, as you could tell by my excitement during that interview, I'm just a fan. I'm just someone that grew up with a great respect for the past. Um, we always got to remember where we came from. No better way to do that than honoring people like Chloe Madonis. That, uh, that story about Milton Erickson working his magic and hypnotizing Chloe and helping her with her crippling anxiety was uh, one of my favorite stories in the in our year and a half long run here on the podcast. Um, thank you again, Chloe Madonis. You can find out all things Chloe Madonis related at the Robbins Madonis training. That's 
rmtcenter.com. And that is where she applies her strategic and systemic thinking uh, to transform the lives of individuals, couples, businesses, and organizations. So she has kind of cross-pollinated and combined, as you heard her talk about her partnership with Tony Robbins and how he discovered her and um, really brought her back to prominence. Pioneer Series, something we do often, and we have more pioneers coming up in the next weeks and months, and we try to stagger that with current topics, uh, clinical topics that all systemic therapists are interested in and need to know about with also the latest and greatest of what's going on in the AAMFT, including the Topical Interest Networks. Please find us wherever you get your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcasts, but you can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, We really appreciate ratings and reviews. Helps us rise up the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Drop me a line. The email is info at elikaram.com. E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. You can reach the AMFT at communications at aamft.org. Follow us on Twitter. My handle is at Dr. Eli Live. And you can follow the AMFT at the AAMFT. As always, until next time, my friends, stay systemic.